Welcome, everybody, to Who's Your Band. I am Jeffrey Paul. I am joined by Sean Morton, my co-host. How are you, Sean? You know, Jeff, I'm wonderful. Um, we had a, you know, a kind of a weird show Friday night, me and you. It was only like 20 people uh with you featuring for me since i'm the headliner on this show and uh you have to make sure he says that yes i just wanted to make sure everybody knows that um you did fantastic as usual um show was a little uh off for me uh but you know what it is um the next night last night i sold out i sold out catch a rising star with uh my friend gary sharp so basically what i'm saying to you is is uh the friday night show suffered because you were the feature yeah, yeah, I, that makes perfect sense, you know. But you know, you're the headliner. Yeah, but your so the, name the pressure was on fall, it. But the pressure falls on you. No, no, no. The, your name was on the flyer too. So, like, if I had to pick, like, if I'm a if I'm an audience member and I go, well, I know Sean is f- just an amazing, amazing comic, and he's mm-hmm. going to be there both nights. So let me Google Jeffrey Paul and let me Google Gary Sharp. And you know, Jeff, you're doing this 20 years, and and this my other feature was doing it four, and he had a phenomenal set. Um, so that's basically I'm I'm putting all the blame on you as what happens basically, as as usual. We know who can help us this you know, <laughs> with this decision. It's it's our guest for today, and I find this guy to be a very very interesting guy. I mean, and then like when I started to do a little bit of a, a, a research on him, he's even more interesting than I had originally anticipated. So I mean, to just introduce our guest as a comedian is really underselling a lot so we're just going to bring him in and we're going to get right into it let's bring in mr eddie brill how are you eddie i'm all right and you know of of all the million things i've done in the business still my favorite is being a stand-up and it always has and it always will and uh, i think i consider myself first and foremost a stand-up and all that other stuff is stuff that i happen to run into on my uh you know trials and travails and all that kind of stuff yeah and see Sean is putting the blame on me because because on a Friday night when it rained in Princeton, New Jersey, he he drew thirty people. It was more, I think, it was more than twenty. We had about but 30. I drew one hundred and twenty last night. Right, That's all I'm so saying that makes, you, that makes you the king of Princeton. I, well, listen. <laughs> <laughs> That's really not saying much, Eddie. No, That's but you saying. know, I've had some of the best times in my life at that club. It used to be that they had money and they'd pay us and they'd put us up. Yeah. at the hotel and they had that incredible brunch or whatever but uh, so many great memories i remember uh the day that david Cohn pits a no header hitter and also the um you know like it was just i was there with two of my best friends doing stand-up i had a lot of fun in that venue but it's been a while since i've been there have you ever been so drunk at like 1 30 in the morning that you're laying on the ground trying to catch the koi fish in the koi pond <laughs> you know, my life has mostly been so drunk at one thirty in the morning playing with the koi fish that I only know that. You know, all, <laughs> that, all, that all that other stuff is a blur. <laughs> Eddie, how did you get started in comedy? In college, you know, I went to, uh, you know, I was a kid. I I was very much into sports and I would be the announcer of basketball and football. And I love the attention I got. And um you know, and also wrote for the local paper, and that was kind of cool. Um, where was where was where was this? Where were you? I'm from Brooklyn, but I grew up in for junior high school, high school in Hollywood, Florida. Well, okay, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, they have the casino yeah. down there now. Oh uh, yeah, you know, and racism, and but that's always, <laughs> it's one of the most racist places I've ever been in my yeah. life, except for South Carolina, but that's a whole other podcast. Oh. Um, but you know, it was it was pretty you know pretty fun to have that little popularity kind of thing. 
But when I went to college, my freshman year, the first people I met um, were amazing comedians who had never done comedy before. Amazing. And sorry, and this was this was Emerson College. Emerson College, and that's so, in Massachusetts. Know, yeah, and it was Stephen Wright and Dennis Leary, and right. I can just go down the list of the of some of the people who've been part of it, and they've still part of my life all these years later. And our comedy group was wildly successful. You know, Emerson has a history of comedy. Before us, it was Norman Lear and Bill Dana and Jay Leno and Andrea Martin and on and on and on. It's, it sounds almost like uh, Second City. Yeah, very much so. It was very much like that. We had an improv sketch group and there was some really great writers in there. Um, and we were, like I said, incredibly successful. Norman Lear had came to visit the school. I had met him and uh, we started the first comedy writing department in America in a college because of it, because the school was not really that supportive, but we were doing something really great. And I think we learned what jealousy was even on a, a very small level, you know, through the teachers who were teaching drama and didn't get as many audience members, you know, and it's mostly because who was the middle act and that's why we didn't do well. That's that's yeah. what it always comes down to. Who's was going to the, the middle act on Friday night. But no, we it was just wildly successful. There was a comedy scene going on in Boston with some of the legends that a lot of you guys will know. Don Gavin, Lenny Clark, Steve Sweeney, all these people. They, Those are Boston uh, legends. Sure. Yeah. And who was running the whole thing was Barry Crimmins, one of the most biggest geniuses in comedy and the most loving, caring for the industry. So Didn't that it, scene, Eddie, I'm sorry, didn't that scene yeah. evolve out of a, the back of a Chinese restaurant? Yeah, the front of a Chinese restaurant. Okay. Hooky <laughs> Lao. Yeah. <laughs> it was the Ding Ho in Cambridge, in Inman Square. So uh, that pretty much, and there was a couple other venues, and there were some alum, some satellite things, but we were lucky at Emerson. We had the venue. We created it ourselves. And, you know, our friend was Stephen Wright, and he was a, a great stand-up, and we all tried it ourselves. And, you know, I wasn't very good at it, but I, I the only time I was good at it was when my friends were in the audience because they laughed at anything. But I felt like we were kind of good. And then I just decided, well, that was fun, but I need a real career. Moved back to New York, um, you know, did uh, did some advertising, lied for a living. And then I remembered how much I loved telling the truth for a living. And I went back to stand up in 1984. Um, I started a club in the village that eventually became the Boston Comedy Club. But originally it was that was called. the paper moon. Right. So I started that club. Uh, Colin Quinn helped me to run it. And, uh, you know, Adam Sandler made his first appearance there and Wendy Liebman and uh, list again on and on and on of people, their first New York appearances. And uh, Colin and I worked a lot because we were, you know, sort of running the place. We did a lot of hosting and we learned a lot. And then little by little things started happening in my life. But it really started in school, in college, you know, with really talented people, even though we were young and arrogant and, you know, cocky or whatever, we worked really, really hard. And uh, and it paid off. And we we put the work in every time and never, you know, that's the one thing I learned from my early days in college is you put the work in, it pays off. Why did you go into comedy instead of going into journalism and sports broadcasting, sports writing? Because it seems like early on, that's pretty much what you seem to kind of do. And that gave you a little bit of notoriety uh, that, you know, when you first started, you know, attract you to this. So why didn't you go in that direction? Why <laughs> Why stand up? Well, earlier, my stepfather had died of cancer at 37. And I just thought, you know, I just can't live a life where I'm not doing what I love because you never know when it's over. And it hit hard because I was the oldest and I raised, you know, there were five of us. 
So I raised everybody. So I knew what it was like to have, you know, life being really precious. So when I went to school, I started doing news uh, stuff. And I worked with John Miller, who was a, became a very famous news person. We were the anchor team. But it was boring. It was, you know, it, and then when I went as an internship in the news, it was creepy as hell. And and uh, and it was just about, you know, it was about the lead that, you know, lead that bleeds. And, you know, I saw a lot of the reporters at ABC where I did my internship getting hammered because they hated their lives uh, being in the news industry. <clears throat> and as we can see today, news industry is, you know, just just horrific and there's nothing really there's very little to trust where in comedy it was the most pure feeling i ever had in my life i remember the first laugh i got on the very first bit our comedy group ever did and it's like heroin you chase that for the rest of your life uh, and you put up with all the shitty gigs that you have mainly because that laugh is so beautiful and so powerful absolutely true um and, and that's really and it's such you know some people never learn the lesson of understanding how precious life really is and really taking it and embracing it. Um, you, you had mentioned uh, before that you, had, did, you, know, you did you work with Norman Lear? Well, Lear had gone to the school and, uh, you, you know, uh, I got to meet him. Well, I didn't, I didn't go up to him at first because I was nervous, but this, we didn't really get support from the college, the professors at the college, except for one. And when Lear was there, one of those professors who were was not supportive of us was talking about how great our comedy group was. And I was like, you know, Woo! <laughs> like just so angry that this woman was sort of taking credit that I just walked over to Norman Lear and said, hey, that lady just bullshit you. And she's, <laughs> you know, and I'm very angry. And, and he said, well, what do you need? And I said, well, well, there's so many graduates from Emerson. I mean, if you look past, you know, after we were there, uh, the you know David Cross and Bill Burr and uh, Jennifer Coolidge and Laura Keitlinger and on and on and on. But before that, before there was anything going on at that college, there was um you know it was mostly like the it was writing and uh, there was no real stand up. There was no real uh, program there. And but we did know that Jerry Paris. Uh, who was from the Dick Van Dyke show when it was there, that the head writer at SNL at the time was Marilyn Suzanne Miller, who was the head writer of, you know, Saturday Night Live. So we said, can we meet some of these people, learn from them? So he donated money to the school, the school matched it, and they created a comedy writing department and brought in all these incredible graduates to come in. And they even brought in not graduates like, you know, Art Buckwald and all these people. And it was really a very good beginning because it was a very intelligent way to look at comedy as opposed to like, you know, which is. No, I mean, no, I get it. And you're you're just rattling off like legends. I mean, absolute like legends, Mount Rushmore type people. I'm just kind of curious on what kind of impact that they had on your life, on your career. You know, I mean, think about how fortunate you were to have these people kind of like guiding you and at a young age to kind of put you on the right path and doing it the right way. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I can't, you know, I, I'm so thankful. And so, you know, you know, I'm the very first Letterman said I appeared on television doing Letterman. I had Joan Rivers and, and, uh, you know, David, um, not David Steinberg. What am I talking about? I, have, but I had Joan Rivers, um, helped me and, uh, David Brenner, the two of them helped me with my set. You know, uh, comics are comics, and it doesn't matter if you're a thousand years old or eighty or twenty. Everyone relates to each other. You know, there's a lot of bullshit and a lot of, you know, anger and a lot of hatred and a lot of self doubt. 
but that's the world anyway, you know, that's uh, that, you know, so I was very lucky to not be in, you know, intimidated by these people who you could just see that they really cared about comedy. You know, one of the um, many incredible moments in my life was meeting Dick Cavett, who I was a huge fan of, and then becoming like friends with him. And then, and I sat with him once and I said, right after we first met, and I said, you, I, I, I don't know if you know how surreal this is sitting with you at lunch. And he told me that he had the same scenario with Groucho, where he had the nerve to talk to Groucho and they sat across from each other at lunch. And then I said to him, I said, well, you're no Groucho. And I, that solidified our friendship because I shit on him and he laughed and, you know, and we've been, it's like having an uncle that is this genius, but also just a regular guy. So, you know, you meet, I met so many incredible people along the way, became friends with Rickles, who was my father's favorite comedian. And my father didn't want me to do stand up, but when he heard Rickles on television say that he loved me on the Letterman show, my father supposedly, according to legend, that he cried and uh, sort of accepted me as someone who, you know, is funny or whatever. His friends told him that I was a decent stand up or whatever. Jeff, if you had to pick two people, who do you think would be the two people like that influenced you? Not talking like comedy influences, but like your two comics that are like local that really helped you out the most when you were starting off. Starting off, it's very, very easy. Uh, Nate Bargatze was the first guy. I was in a, I was at an open mic at uh, Eastville Comedy Club, and I was I started when I was a little bit older. So um, he, him, and Dave Smith took me out to there was a place called Cabin on Second Avenue. And it was two for one drinks. We get hammered in there. He gets me a he gets me a 10 minute spot that night. I have five minutes worth of material. I breeze through it in three and sweat the next seven. And <laughs> and so until he moved, uh, I think he moved to either the L.A. or Nashville at that point. Um, we stayed in touch like all the time. And, you know, he would give me advice and it really helped me out a lot. And the other guy who I mean, I say it to this day, I do a podcast with him is um, not you, Sean, is um <laughs> Uh, Dustin Chafin, he gave me, you know, he he ran he ran he ran a, a bunch of clubs and yeah. really kind of he would tell me stuff, and at the time, you know, I I couldn't apply it, and then down the road I was like, okay, now I see what he's talking about, and you know, you're able to apply it, like you know, you know, just something like about like comics would hang out in the green room, and you know, it's it's a great hang, but really the education is out in the room, learning in the room, uh, you know, not not taking a night off what i mean by that is mailing in a set you know you know even if it's hmm. uh, even if it's a light audience you know i'm not i'm not gonna like uh just like mail it in i'm gonna get something out of it they pay to come out there plus you never know what you're gonna find you're gonna find this tag you're gonna may find a joke you know someone may like you book you for a private there's a million different things this is what i know is that it happens out there and i'm never gonna like take for granted uh stage time mm-hmm so I say, I would, I would say those two. two Mine? Yeah. Uh, very, very easy. Um, the first one, uh, and they're both actually two of my dearest friends in comedy besides Jeffrey. I would say uh, Vanessa Hollingshead. Um, I started with, uh, you know, I was going on the road with her a lot and hosting in the very beginning. Uh, I ran a room in New Jersey. It was one of the weirdest setups you ever saw in your life. It was called the Colorado Cafe. And it was a country western bar. So one side had the stage that would hold like five, six hundred people. And the other room, which is where I was doing it, had a horseshoe bar that the stage was on top of the bar. And straight ahead was the mechanical bull. 
<laughs> so you would have to, I mean, it would be a Thursday night show and I would just, you know, I would throw comics like 50 bucks for a spot, but I was getting people like Voss, uh, Mike Marino, all these guys just popping in to work on material. So I was getting my chops up hosting. I booked Vanessa and we became friends. And I told this story last night, actually. Um, the turning point for me with her was I was working at a club and I was like stuck in like in, in hosting hell for like two, two, three years. And I was ready to feature at that point. And I was hosting for her. And the booker said to her flat out with an earshot of me, he's only going to host at this place. So Vanessa comes up to me and says, listen, I want you to do me a favor tonight. I'm like, OK, what are your credits? What do you want me to change? She goes, no, no, no. I want you to blow me out of the water. I go, nice. what, are you, what are you talking about? And she goes, I heard you heard what he said. I go, yeah, I'm, I'm annoyed. She goes, don't be annoyed. Blow me out of the fucking water. I know you can do it. And that way you'll get that next push. So I I just did everything I could to really have a great set. And then, of course, we we're all done. He goes, I guess I got to put you on to feature now. And then I went <laughs> way up to headliner with that. And then, um, I mean, our relationship is amazing. Like she did her last special three years ago. I helped her produce it. I mean, I wrote jokes for her. We reorganized her whole special um, so to this day, she's still one of my dearest friends. And then, uh, the other one, not only like, uh, a, a good influence, she's actually a real, a hero of mine is Carol Montgomery. Oh yeah. And, and uh, I've known, I've known her for a long time. She was my pseudo agent for about three weeks when I had my manager and she was working for my douchebag manager at the time. <laughs> and, uh, but now we've, <laughs> we've, uh, you know, this relationship has blossomed from watching, you know, her starting off the women of a certain age at the Crane Theater with like seven people in the crowd right. to, you know, three ph phenomenal Showtime specials. And uh, she gives me amazing advice all the time, uh, even on a friendship level. I'll just go into the city and have lunch with her and pick her brain. And, you know, she'll pick my brain, which is like a, the weirdest thing in the world. Like you don't want to see pe you can't imagine people who have been doing this. Good, good ideas. Good suggestions can come from anywhere. And it's, very, it's so you weird. Know? You know, it's, it's so weird. It's humbling. Smart people are open minded. Yeah. And that's the right. truth. And that's the real truth, you know. But, uh, you know, even she gave me ideas about my first special that I'm going to shoot. Like she told me how to figure it out. And she said, this is the idea that I thought. And I was like, this is absolutely brilliant that no one has done this yet. So. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, I'm always going to support her. She's coming to my house three weeks from tonight after her. She's a two o'clock show down the block from my house. And we're going to have dinner and margaritas here in three weeks. So. <laughs> that sounds great. You know, you know yeah. what's interesting? I'm busy about that the, the MC thing with the guy saying you can only MC or whatever. You know, uh, the the role of the MC is so um, wrongly ex exposed or whatever. You know, in Boston, when the comics would work, the headliner would be the MC. Headliner would come out in, in England too. you know, bring the three different comics up and then close with 25. The headliner, the MC is the most important person in the show. And a lot of times, you know, they would, uh, you know, give like the MC would like, I remember there was this guy who's kind of, I won't mention his name, but he takes advantage of comedians. And he said he wanted to help young comedians by giving them five minute spots. But what he did was he put them on at the very beginning, which was no help to any comedian or the show. It was right. just a way that this person acted like they were really being responsible. But the MC is the most important part of the show. 14 years, every Monday night, I hosted a Caroline's and I became a better comic because of it. So when someone puts uh, an act on at the beginning and who's not experienced, they've already ruined the show. Sure. They, I still love hosting. I still love uh, every once in a while I'll get the opportunity to host and I love it. I, I love really truly do because 
you know, when you go into the feature mindset, you you're you're saying, okay, I have to do 30 minutes. I'm going to start with this, this, this. Your headliner set, you're doing 45 to an hour. But you can do I love doing crowd work. Like that's one of my favorite things in the world to do. So for me, I'll just I will take any joke that I have and completely throw it away. And I will just do 10, 15 minutes of crowd work, get them moving so I can get the feature or whoever's going up uh in a comfortable spot. Cause if you are a shit host, that show is starting at the bottom and you gotta work your way up. But I'd rather start in the middle or high and keep right. it going for you know, even further. Exactly. Like when I'd audition, when I'd run an audition, I'd either have William Stevenson or Vic Henley host because they were at the time the best hosts. Two the best. But before that, Mike Sweeney, you know, Larry Amaros, you know, uh, Belzer, those, the history of the great hosts are so important because a host who is, if you're running an audition and the host is auditioning too, the whole show is ruined because the MC is trying to be seen. I, whenever I would audition people, I'd make sure that the host hosted. And that made it easy for the comics that follow to be able to be seen in their best possible light, you know, and it, it's so important. But again, a lot, a lot of people don't know because the setup outside of, you said, London or Boston is, is completely different. It's like, let's put the comic with the least experience up top. It's not the best way to do it. Right. And what happens is the audience now doesn't have confidence in the show if the if the host isn't good. And now, again, the first guy that has to go up has to dig you out of, out of that hole. Um, By you know, hosting. The middle act has to host because the host didn't yeah. host. Or, or if it's a feature club and you have you know multiple comics on the show, you know, that first guy is take really taking the bullet for everybody. And it may not be fair to him. Now, you said you ran a club, the Paper Moon. OK, Um were you able to spot talent immediately? And what would you see in someone if you did? You know, you'd see that they they were below, they'd go below the surface. You know, I put a thing, I always say Nina Simone is where I go when I look for great comedians. Because like, you, if you put Celine Dion and Nina Simone in the show, you're going to get both incredible singers. But to me, Celine Dion paints by numbers. You know, she puts number one in, in this little space and two here and blue and red and all this. And it's perfect and everything's perfect, but there's no soul. There's no heart. There's no, you know, there's no, <clears throat> there's no mistakes. It's all this, you know, horrible mediocrity. Um, although the voice is great. Nina Simone, you know, she went out there and she just ripped her guts open and sang out there out loud about, you know, from the bottom of her soul, or you look at you know, Bonnie Raid or somebody like that, or Shaka Khan. That's what I look for in comedians, a comedian who is willing to just get out of their head and just come from, you know, the, you know, all of our neurotransmitters in our body, or most of them are in our gut. And that's where comedy comes from, uh, or, uh, creativity and uh, originality, you know, comes from that. So you could tell when someone like, and also the other part is when someone's trying to please the other person, it's usually not as a, not very alluring. But if you go up with like, this is my truth. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, go fuck yourself. And that I like those. That was Patrice. Yeah, that was no, really that, Patrice. That was that was um, uh, uh, Paul Mooney. Right. Same, same exact way. Dave Chappelle. It's Chris Rock. It's, you know, it's people just telling their truth. Somebody will say, well, you know, I didn't like Chappelle's joke about this. Said, well, he's not here to please you. Uh, if you don't like Chappelle, just watch another Either wait for the next joke and see if you like it or watch something else that pleases you. But well, it's never alluring. This. It's never alluring to me. Sorry to interrupt. But it's never alluring to me to see someone just kissing my ass. I'd rather have someone with their own backbone, their own strength. They can agree sometimes and 
we disagree other times and we still leave being friends okay so where does the line okay so you you go to a caroline you go to a stress factor i'm just naming uh local clubs you know like caroline's not open anymore but you know we just talk about headliner clubs where people would come out and they would go to see a headliner you know yeah it's great to speak truth but this isn't spoken word this is comedy right so where do you have to kind of be entertaining i'm not talking about pandering but you know right. there has to be entertaining okay and mm -hmm. kind of like please the audience and not just go up and give it like a dissertation and some rambling bullshit right well you don't want to not please the audience i mean but you want to tell your truth and be alluring and be spectacular and be one of a kind and be creative and you could do that by making people and make people laugh. You could do that. And, you know, people will be pleased by it. But if you have a joke that you want to talk about, and it's a, it makes people uptight. It's not my business to try to, you know, change what I do to make people not uptight. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's what I mean about pleasing people. But I do you know, you do want to please people. You do want laughter. You know, like a lot of times people will pander. And that to me makes me sick to my stomach. It's like when you watch someone looking for applause, it's like, we're not in this for applause. We're in this for laughter. You know, you can make anyone applaud. You know, you a lot of comedians uh, get laughs off the, and responses more than just laughs, off the backs of other people's work. Hey, how about those troops? Let's hear it for them. Well, what does the <laughs> troops have to do with your set? You know, who's gonna go, fuck the troops? You know, I hate the troops. I can't believe you're bringing them up. I'm out of here. You know, it's just bullshit and uh, pandering. And I learned that working in Europe, how the crowds there, they do not put up with it. If they, they, they call it a very American thing to do is to like, hey, my very first line when I auditioned in London, I said, it's great to be here in London. And a guy in the audience said, oh, bullshit. <laughs> Luckily, because I only had 10 minutes, I said, yeah, you're right. It's a shithole. It smells like piss. And then the crowd laughed that I came back. Luckily, because then I had a good rest of the set. But they don't. If, if you pander to the audience in Europe, they turn you off and go, go fuck yourself, American, because that's such an American thing to do uh, in in clubs is that pandering. And it's it's sickening almost. I, I actually watched Ricky Gervais's uh, last special last night after I came home from the show. I love him. And he's amazing. But, I, you know, to piggyback what you're saying, I think a lot of it comes with experience. A lot of it comes with the time that you've put in, uh, things of that nature. Like, I don't... I, just from my point of view, I personally don't give a flying fuck if anybody's laughing because I'm I know where my set's going to go and I'll talk about some dark shit and I'll talk about some stupid, funny shit. And like I watched, you know, I did it last night. I brought two people up on stage and I thought it was going to go a lot better than it was going to be in my head. And the first part of it went great. And the second part of it, like a fart in church. And I didn't care. I didn't give a fuck. But I got home and watched Ricky Gervais's special and he's talking about how. Um, you can't make fun of people anymore and how the one, you know, the one, uh, what am I thinking of? The one classification of people that is untouchable are transgender people. And he goes, and they just want Tell to be that included. To what? Yeah. Right. But, yeah. but, but Gervais goes, and they want to be included. So that's why I'm talking about these motherfuckers in the special. <laughs> and right. it was in London. I think it was in London too. And the place just went nuts. And like, he's talking about, you know, uh, a, a baby in a coffin like yeah. what what can you think can you think of one thing that is probably more horrific 
in the entire world than thinking about a baby in a coffin. And he's talking about how, you know, the father, uh, he doesn't really like the baby yet. But, you know, the mother might, the mother is probably going to be a little cranky for a couple days. Like he's saying some dark, horrific shit. And the roar that's coming out of these pla- these people is just unbelievable. It's because all we're all dark. As much as light, we have light, there is so much darkness that, you know, that religion and politics and advertising try to tamp us down from doing. But in reality, we're, you know, human beings are even sicker sexually because of the way religion has put down sex and made it a horrible thing. You know, it's like these people who think that they're make a difference or they're in charge or they're the voice of reason. And there's so many different kinds of people. There are people who have sick comedy and people who want to hear pleasant, pleasant because they, you know, they don't they don't want to be tested for whatever. Like I went to George Carlin and I said, how do I talk about religion? I have all of this material. He says, just talk about it. And he said one of the things he says, don't. He said that, you know, they can't argue with your perception. They might not agree with it but they can't argue with it. So just do what you do and do it well. And the best compliment I've ever gotten in the world was working in uh, Boise, Idaho. You have to say Boise or else they get mad. Uh, I said, we don't say New Jersey, but that's a whole other thing. Boise, Idaho. And these four Mormon ladies came up to me at the end of the show and they said, look, we didn't agree with anything you said about religion, but we respected the way you brought it up. Because that's a great, it was that, my that, first, and that's the greatest. It's like that's yeah. a great that's a great compliment. And and also just to piggyback on what you said, and I I couldn't agree with you more about about being pandering and and, and just shouting into an echo chamber is when you'll see comics and they'll take that really edgy point of view. And I've seen this on multiple shows, but multiple comics on the same show, and they'll they'll come right out and say, you know. I'm really against racism. Really? You're against racism? <laughs> Holy shit. Let's you know, hear it for the troops, the racist yeah, troops. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I was hosting the show, and then like after I heard like three comics say, I was like, you know what? I'm really in favor of racism now. Okay. <laughs> now, 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 I, now, now I'm all about it. Like, I mean, and to me, that's funnier than saying I hate racism. Exactly. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, like who in their right mind is going to say, you know what? I'm really for it. And you right. know what? And if you and if you are for it, then you know at least you have the guts to say it out loud. But there's the thing like, I'm against it in a room full of New York City liberals. Okay, hey, guess what? You know you're gonna people are gonna like you. Yeah, you're not you're not, you're not, you're not pushing the envelope there a little. People bit. are gonna like you if they could see that you're being you're a human being and you're being human and that you have you're not afraid of your vulnerabilities. Like I remember Bill Burr and I were talking a long time ago, and I was booking Letterman. And I said, you know, I'd love to put you on, but every everybody sucks but you in your act. I said, it's got to come back to bite you in the ass every once in a while. And I learned that from working with Robert Schimmel for years on the road about that biting you, you in the ass. Uh, and so I told him that. And about four weeks later, he called me. I get it. I understand. And it's not because I made it up. That's been told to me countless times by other comedians, uh, you know, about every once in a while it comes back to bite you in the ass. Because it's if someone is like just shitting on people, shitting on everybody else, it really isn't as compelling as going, look, like I wrote a joke a million years ago and it was about how people looked on the outside. You know, I lived in Florida for a little bit and there were a lot of Canadians and they're short, fat guys in Speedos and with these beautiful wives. And I did a very mediocre joke about how it was probably the money in the of these guys. So and what I was saying was that these guys couldn't be, you know, um, you know, good on their own. And then I realized years later when I came back to the joke that the bottom line is I was jealous. 
I was jealous of these guys. And that's the that's really the foundation of the joke, not the money, not the, you know, how they look on the That's outside. the vulnerability. Vulnerability. So I said, I said, you know, I always wondered how these guys got these women. And it's probably because these guys are nice or either they're not, you know, vindictive, you know, you know, judgmental assholes like me. And that got the biggest laugh, if I would have pronounced it right. Uh, um, but it uh, it got a big laugh because, again, it was, you know, we're all guilty of what we accuse other people of doing. That's how we do it, because we see it in other people. Eddie, you were the count coordinator for, in my opinion, the best late night show ever, the David Letterman show, an incredibly important position. What was the process like for you to pick comics? Um did you ever get it wrong? And, you know, were you, you know, you're a smart guy, but, but were you aware of the impact that you could have on people's lives and careers in doing this? I tried yeah. not to think about that. I know that exists. But, you know, the great thing about the show, one of the many great things about the show is everybody was the best at what they did. And Letterman, the best host, uh, the main cameraman was Walter Cronkite's cameraman. Uh, the producers were amazing. The writers were from... Um, the writers were from Harvard. I mean, it was that you're working with the best of the best. And Letterman demanded that kind of high energy, high uh, quality every single day. And when the show was over, everything that happened before um, was uh, was thrown away and we're ready for the new day of all this new stuff. So I was the warm up comic first, which I got um, because I was the warm up with Dana Carvey. And when that show was over. Some of the producers there, including Louis C.K., were working at Letterman and they recommended me to do the warm up. So, you know, I got close to Dave because Dave's assistant had also gone to Emerson like me. And and, uh, you know, she brought me into the circle. I got to meet Dave and then I started going to the desk in every commercial break. And it was really great because I can offer some funny ideas or talk about the Beatles or just hang out and, you know, just be there. And it was really nice. And I felt like I was part of something incredible. Now, Zoe Friedman, who booked me on Letterman, was the booker. And she got an incredible job at Comedy Central. And they were looking for a new booker. And they recommended me to be the person because we always talked about stand up. So it got to a position where I said, well, I, I'll do it. But I want comics every week, because we only have 12 to 14 comics a year. And that's not enough. And so they said, well, we're going to start one a month. And that's the way it's going to go. And then the first comic was Jeff Stilson, who actually filled in last minute for someone who was sick. And he crushed. And all of a sudden they got now you got a comic every week. Go at it. And then, it was, you know, and I started bringing in people like uh, the Mothers Brothers and Robert Klein. And, uh, you these know, these were established guys already. Yeah. I mean, these were big, big, big stars. Carlin, I, I put on the show, Roseanne. And I was putting these people and they go, we want a bunch of young comics. So uh, at the time it was, you know, I try to, you know, bring in young comics along the way. And it how was, would that how would that work, Eddie? You know, would you go out and, and scout the comics yourself? Was it yeah. based on reputation? What, what, what would you do? Yeah, I work comedy works in Denver and I did a Wednesday through Saturday. I'd stay Sunday so that I can they'd set up a showcase and I'd look at 10 comics uh, that they do. And I did that in every great comedy club in America. And when I say great comedy clubs, I mean people who, you know, ran like Wendy Curtis from the Denver Comedy Works. She loves her community and really treats her community amazing. And so I was able to see incredible comics because Lewis Lee in Minneapolis at Acme, you know, I could just go on and on with all these incredible bookers. But more than that, I got comics mainly from other comics I respected. You know, Bonnie McFarlane or Louis C.K. or people would say, you know, I work with this comic on the road. You should watch them. And that's how I got most 
uh, alerted to most of them. I When I first took over, I had like 35 boxes of VHS tapes to go through. And I went through every one of them. And I only got two comics out of Nick Griffin and Karen Rontowski out of all of those boxes. Nick, Nick, Nick is awesome. Yeah. And I gave yeah. them, you know, and it's fun, you, you know. I don't, I never, I tried not to think, oh, I have this important job or I'm going to change people's lives. What I really wanted to do was put these people in the best possible position because I did the show. I knew what it was like. As Buddy Hackett says, I walked the last 30 feet, meaning from backstage to the microphone. So I knew what it was like. And I was able to, you know, give a lot of people their breaks, you know, Camille Nanjiani and, uh, you know, uh, like I said, Karen Rontowski or, you know, I put a lot of people on Mike Birbiglia. And on and on and on, list, 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 Hannibal Burris, getting these people. And, you know, not only was it me finding what I looked for in great comedians, knowing what Dave liked, which was really smart comics who were also the ability to be silly, like a Jake Johansson. Um, I also was able to, you know, get these incredible recommendations from comics who, uh, you know, traveled on the road and said, I just worked with this incredible act and uh, you should look at them. I, got I guess to- my tape got lost. Yeah. Well, if if it did, it yeah. was because I needed something for the door jam. Yeah. <laughs> no, I looked. I looked at every. So you served one. a purpose, Sean. Yeah, okay. I looked at every one. I I did. I looked at every tape, and it was very painstaking because people would come out. I had some funny tapes of uh, comics who were just new at it. I had a guy who had a, a hairbrush, and he had covered the TV behind him with a sheet, and his father was filming the the comedy, and he was smoking, so you saw smoke coming into the lens. <laughs> And every time his son did a joke that he liked, he would laugh and the camera would shake. You know, I had a ton of those and they were just fun to watch. Oh, uh, so you did get my tape. Yeah, that w- was great. And your father, I don't know, what was he smoking? I couldn't tell. Um, Crack. Right. And that's, but, you know, I saw some amazing comics who I said, hey, I think you're, you know, you got something there. Do not quit. Do not stop. Did you answer everybody? Um, Mostly everybody. If someone, if I had a tape, and it said, hey, how you fucking people doing? You know, so I'm eating shit. You know, they they didn't really care about <laughs> putting together a set for a, a television show. But That's the other thing about here, comedians. I contacted, I contacted <laughs> it's funny how unself-aware comedians could sometimes be. Right. right. Like It's like, hey, this is easy. I'll, you know, we were talking about this the other night, Sean. You right. know, you have some people just think it's so easy. I'll just get up and do it, you know. And, yeah. you know, and, and just, it's insulting. Um I wound up becoming in the last couple of years uh, friends with Alu Bell, who I knew Dave loved. Loved, yeah, Alu Bell. You know, don't forget to get your car at Alu Bell's. You know, Alu Bell half hour on Alu Bell. Yeah, well, you know, he's a hilarious comedian Brilliant. and been around forever and ever. And did the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and uh, he's a pretty special guy and one of a kind comedian. And Dave, loved that's him. a great way of putting it. He is definitely a one of a kind. Comedian, uh, yeah, did I tell you about the radio spot that I had to do on Friday to promote our shows this weekend? Uh, yes, I heard about. This. So this is so Eddie. This <laughs> this is one thing that that really bothers me. I want you'll never get your time this. back after this story. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, what do you think about fake credits? Yeah, there's no reason for it, really. What do you think about if somebody is trying to interview you? Do you think that they should actually do some research? Yeah, I think, I, I think that would that, that's a nice way to do it. Or if they're an incredible interviewer, you know, there are cases where you I've been interviewed by people and then they you could just see their savvy interviewers like, you know, Letterman was a great interviewer. Uh, sometimes he went with the notes and sometimes he didn't. And uh, so I don't think always 
it's always good to have the research to fall back on. But if you're a good host and all of a sudden the conversation, like one time I saw Leno interviewing, what's her name? She played uh, Pacino's wife in Godfather. Uh, 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 Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton. And she said something to Leno where she said, you know, I'm so how's your life? He said, and she said, well, it's really weird because all I feel is I'm going from TV show to TV show and I don't feel like I'm bringing anything to the table. I, th I feel like it's like almost a fake. So you never hear that from these actors. Everyone's kissing ass. If I was the interviewer, I would have went, I would have changed course and said, tell me about that. How is, what is that like? What did you do before? Whatever. And they went, eh. so anyway, and then went back to the notes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, like and, and, you know, that's what's <laughs> killing late night because it's scripted. It's not authentic. Yeah. I don't think that, you know, the, the old uh, way of, of doing late night talk shows is viable anymore. You know, you could see it in the ratings, you know? Um, yeah. And it wasn't, you know what? When Johnny Carson was putting comedians on, you would do a set and the next day you had a career. When we were doing Letterman, it wasn't like that anymore. There were too many shows, Conan and Jon Stewart and all these. And other also shows Johnny did 90 minutes, if you remember. Right. You know, the yeah. now shows are anywhere for a half hour to, to an yeah. hour. You know, Kimmel's really good at what he does. You know, he's one of the, to me, he's one of the, the people who, you know, worship Letterman and you could see the influence there. And, you know, Conan at the beginning was not a great host and, you know, because he wasn't a real host and he had to grow into it and then he became very good at it. Agreed. It's not easy. It's a very few people in the world have ever been really good at it. And Letterman, Jack Parr, Steve Allen, you know, just to name three are, are you know, uh, Carson, the geniuses. But uh, it's not an easy job to do because your your whole job as the host is to facilitate the show. And it, you have to be quick on your feet. And you also have to be, you know, talented, funny and intelligent. And very few people are, you know, were able to pull that off. That's that's a really good insight. Um, how did you choose the, the songs that the comics came out to? Now, now I'm sure for for you now get to know you a little bit. Um, that had to be like a big thing for you because you're a big music guy. It was huge. Well, you know the the only people on the show who got to choose what they came out to uh, was the comedians. We got to choose. You know, you watched. Uh, what's it? Uh, Gaffigan would do Pink Houses, and you know Jake Johansson did. Uh, um, what's his face? Uh, my brain is, is so shot today. I've been up since early. Uh, Frank Zappa. And it was always, you know, all these different kinds of things. For me, um, I had uh, Paperback Writer. It was the first song for me because I think it's one of the greatest songs ever as far as production and the backwards uh, guitars. And then the, you know, the Frere Jaca that's sung in between the lyrics in two different places that a lot of people have never heard until they listen really carefully. So I did that. Also, I write, I've written and sang a lot of music in my life. And one of the original songs that my friend and I wrote, I got to have the band play as I came out, which was very exciting. You know, there was a song called I Know by Barbara George, which was a great soul song. And my mother and I really loved that song. I would dance to it and, and while we were cleaning the house in Brooklyn. And so I had the, the band play that song and it thrilled my mother to hear that as it came out. You know, it was really cool to be able to pick your own song. If you had a comic that no one knew about, a young guy making his national TV debut, you're picking the song. What what, what, are, you, what are you picking? The whatever that comedian well, wants. He, he gets to pick it? He gets to pick. I didn't pick the song. Wow. Yeah, everyone gets to choose the song they wanted to come out to. Now, Paul, for the other guests, would be so clever and say, this guy's in a movie called The Hand, and then there's like, you know, 
you know, put your hand in the hand or something. He would always relate it. <laughs> That's right. He did to that kind of stuff. He, he was a genius. He is a genius. And he, you know, if you ever notice, I, I noticed when Paul wasn't there, Dave didn't have that person to really riff with really well. And uh, Paul was incredible and is an incredible musician. And that band was amazing. And I sang with that band every night um, in the warm up, which was. Well, that band was also like, because I, I worked. Um, in, you know, with music, I toured for for years, but that band was also be there every Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They were the house band at the they were the house band. all the yeah. time. You know, all those guys. In fact, I we we may have passed crossed path at one point. I know we've been on a couple of shows where you know, but I'd go on and you would, you know first you you close it out and I'd, I'd leave it at that you know Gotham and other clubs. But um, my first job out of college, I worked for a record label. I worked for CBS Columbia. All those guys were session musicians. They'd play on other people's uh, albums. Mm-hmm. And what I would do is like something like Anton Fig and and a bunch of the other guys would, uh, you know, I had the, the the power to, I could pay them right away or I could bury their check. And then, you know, they'd call and like, hey, you know, I just want to check the status of the check. I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, I got it here. It's like, hey, why don't you come on over? Because it was only two blocks down. Right. Why don't you come on over? And like, I'd come over, come on the set, I, you know, give them the check, you know, because they get their money. Otherwise, they would have to wait like sometimes three months to get the check. Right. It was a, it was a, you know, for for a, a new graduate out of college, it was a pretty cool uh, job to have. Um, Sean, if you had a pick, mm-hmm. your walk up music. I know sometimes they, we do have walk up music in certain clubs. What yep. you, what's your go to? Uh, I already I have it in my mind for the last six years, and I've been uh, putting together this hour special for a long time. And I I have I believe if you manifest things that they will come true. I believe if you put the stuff out into the universe and you say you want to do something and you do it and then it'll it'll work its way back there's a song uh called big casino by a band called jimmy eat world and oh, yeah. the chorus is i'll accept with poison grace when they draw my name from the lottery uh i'm the one who gets away i'm a new jersey success story so as i'm walking out you got to hear i'm a new jersey success story and that's going to be the title of the special it's so great. So I, I have that in my head. Now I've put it out there. I've told people this before, but like now it's going to be to a lot of people. So that's if you say it, it you, you have to make it happen. Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. So th- I know in my head every mm. time I hear that song. It it just hits me right in the stomach. And I was like, I, I have to keep working harder. I have to keep doing it because this song needs to be at the very, very beginning of my special. It's wonderful. So yeah. listen, we have we have limited time w- with Eddie, and there's a bunch of more things I want to get to. But this is this show is called Who's Your Band, okay? Right. And before we get into to who your band is, um, you also said that you you sang with band. You know what, Trina, you didn't know this about Eddie Brill. He had uh, he's had a heck of a career. You know, he sang with Sam Kennison's band at the really. Yeah. yeah you know, Kinnison was a great musician, and there are a lot of the yeah. comedians were great musicians. And on Sunday night at the comedy store, there'd be, you know, at the end of the show, Sam would bring out the band and I would sing with them. And uh, and I was in front of the band. And I think Kinnison was a little bit like, let's give Eddie some percussion instrument and sit him. But every once in a while, I'd get to, you know, sing like a honky tonk woman or, you know, some great rock and roll blues song. And, uh, you know, I, I did it a lot. And then on his birthdays, he would rent like this studio and it would just be a bunch of musicians. And I remember Billy Idol had just had um, Moni Moni come out and 
and so he came to the studio and, and I had never played percussion like uh, a Tom before. And I was so high that I was playing it. And I don't know if it was, it probably was shit, but uh, there I am sharing a mic. Oh, Mona, Mona, say good. And it was just <laughs> so weird. I sang at CBGB's a few times, which was more of a thrill than any of that for me because why there was a band called the sick bucks and they were amazing. And they had the, it was all the greatest musicians in the world. And they would sometimes do country Western night and I'd sing a Johnny Cash song or I had different friends in different bands. I had roommates that were bands and, and bands. And I, They'd ask me to sing with them when I, you know, because I love singing. I still do. Uh, you well, know, that, I've been recording music for, for 40 C years. CBGB's, man, that was, that was, I mean, the, the C in CBGB's is country. The B right. is blues, right? Yeah. Um, oh, man, that, what night of the week would you go in there? I mean, because sometimes you can go on a Tuesday night and it would be popping, or you can go on a Saturday night and the place could be like half full. Well, when I was in college, since I left college, I moved to the East Village. And so every neighbor of mine was an incredible musician. My next door neighbor was the bass player of the B-52s. And the, you know, around the corner was, uh, you know, uh, Patti Smith's guitar player. And, uh, you know, it's like everywhere you would go, there would be somebody. There was a million great musicians all living. Robert Gordon was the na a neighbor and Marshall Crenshaw. Some way. Yeah. You know, all these different. Uh, it's funny that you said those two guys back to back because they both right, shared a they hit. both sang yeah. that song. You know, it was a guy named Eddie Dixon who was great. And Hoy Boy and the Doys, which was a great rockabilly band. Sure. You know, they were these were all my friends. So we all lived in the East Village and we'd go to either Max's Kansas City until it closed in October of 80. Uh, and I got to host things there. And and then I also, you know, I spent a lot of time at CB's because their friends ran the door and a lot of our friends are in bands. So we would just go there just to go have a drink and uh, and hang out and listen to the, you know, these incredible bands that you didn't even know, like, like television was a great band that a lot of people didn't know about. And, you know, we just went there and they were about who's with the, and the Ramones lived in the neighborhood. And so they'd come in every once in a while. It was a really great rock and roll time. Uh, you know, we, the mixture, all of our roommates were either comedians, actors, or musicians. You know what the weird part about uh, the weird part about CBGB's though, is after it closed, um i don't know if you were aware of this or not so obviously you know john barvados bought the right. store and they would still do shows there every once in a while so there's yeah. a band that i still love they're called the gaslight anthem yeah. so oh, so great. they're fucking amazing amazing band i got invited to their record release party and then i go in there and then i'm like wow this looks oddly familiar what <laughs> they did was when they uh closed cbgb's they actually cut the drywall out of the walls I don't know if you know right. this. They cut all the drywall out and they put it onto rolling carts. So mm -hmm. that way, if they were ever do shows again at the Varvado space, they would roll out the CBGB walls. Wow. And I, I don't know if they still do it now, but that was the first. I think it was they the still have they still have a lot of the authentic, real uh, stuff from from uh, CBGBs. I mean, the, the thing is, listen, you, you, times change and you know you have to take over but i'm kind of glad at least they kind of understood and respected the history a little bit eddie did you know hilly crystal at all uh no i i saw him and uh i try to avoid him because i was getting in free and i didn't want to say how <laughs> no that had nothing to do with it i i didn't really know him that well i knew most of the musicians and the people who worked the door and the people who worked there and i was there a lot but i never you know because i wasn't one of the bands i never had to deal with him I saw him, you know, almost every night, uh, but I never really knew him well. That was that was some scene back then. I remember, you know, 
CBGB's Max's Kansas City used to uh, go to those places too. But do you remember places like in the um, in the East Village? You had the, the Pyramid Lounge. You had oh um, yeah, I saw Madonna when she her Madonna's boyfriend Steve Ray was the the drummer in the Sick Fucks. So he had told us, hey, you got to see my girlfriend. She's singing at the Pyramid Club, and we would go. You know, we went there all the time. You know, we saw so many great bands at the Pyramid, and so many lousy bands, but it didn't matter because it was just fun to be there. And we lived around the corner from there, so it was never really a, a hassle to just stop over at the Pyramid and see that. You know, yeah, they're whole... reopening right now. Actually, I don't know if you know about that. Pyramid's reopening as a as New York's really only official rock heavy metal club. Oh, good. That, I mean, it it was it was a great scene because you would have the upstairs lounge and downstairs you'd have the bands. Do you remember going to? Um, I used to go with my friends to the Peppermint Lounge as well. Oh, all, yeah, we were just talking about that. Me and my friends the other day saw. You know, that's where I saw. Um, oh, the Rascals for the first time. Uh, you know, one of the you saw the Rascals that, there. Yeah, it was really weird. You know, they. Uh, oh my god. Yeah, I. You know, we would go see every, anybody really. But Peppermint Lounge a lot. I would also spend some time. Yeah, well, yeah, Danceteria and Tramps. One of the greatest. And Bond, and Bond International. Bond International. I saw the famous. Uh, the clash other, shows. Yeah, the I saw three of the five class shows at Bonds, which was really great. It was just, it was amazing. I got to one of the coolest, weirdest, fucked upest gigs in my life was opening for Ray Charles at Tramps at the anniversary wow. of Tramps, and he couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been greater to me. And uh, I have great photos of me and him. And the crowd didn't really cheer for me because they wanted Ray and right. they didn't want a comedian. And Ray said, don't worry about it. He yelled at the crowd for yelling at me. And somebody yelled a request. And he says, fuck you. You yelled at my opening act. I'm doing what I planned on doing. And then you guys get the fuck out of here. You know, he was just such a nice guy and cared about other musicians and artists and Love whatever that. people might say about him. I couldn't have loved that guy any more than I did. So when I asked Eddie to do the show, and one of the questions that you know, I put out there is like, the only thing I need really need from you is just tell me <laughs> who your bands are. And he gave me a list of these bands, all right? And I, one band stood out because it doesn't, one of these things don't belong here, all right? <laughs> so one was XTC, which I think is a very underrated band. Hits like Dear God, Mayor Simpleton, uh, Peter Pumpkin, uh, I love those songs. Right, and that's the more recent XTC stuff. I yeah. was in college with with you know with them when they had their first seven or eight albums. That's Andy Partridge, and he's just like such a such like a unique like uh, brilliant, singer. right? You know, uh, if you like the Beach Boys' recording qualities and the you know uh, what was the name of that movie that that did all the I uh, just it slipped my mind. It was all about all the great musicians who played for uh, the, uh, the the Cutting Crew. Yeah, the the Wrecking Crew. The wrecking, crew, um, the wrecking crew. You know, you saw the great qualities of the background musicians. Well, you know, that's what you had with, you know, with the, you had the best musicians in the world playing with these people. And uh, and their production-wise, XTC was the same kind of production quality that the Beach Boys had. And the Beach Boys used the Wrecking Crew as well. It was just, you yes, know. The, to do pet sounds. Right. Which was amazing. Yeah. yeah. So XTC... You know, I was lucky enough to be able to see them three times live because they didn't tour. Where'd you see them? Um, at my father's place at uh, the uh, the Ritz that was became at Webster Hall. Webster Hall, and I saw them at the Palladium. 
Oh man, all great venues. I used to always be at the Ritz, and uh, I saw uh, Prince at at the Palladium. Oh my god! Um, okay, so you. I think we should go see Joe Perry at the uh, at the Webster Hall. He's playing there in a few weeks. That's crazy that he's playing there. Is it? So you have you had XTC, you had Gang of Four. Not a fan. Um, Elvis Costello, huge fan. Love Elvis Costello. And then the and then. And then the other band this is the one that I don't think like it's like where did this come from Eddie the Who no oh, I, I I can't get enough Who I can't get enough documentaries stories histories they're you know the you know three incredible uh, you know two one guitar one bass one drum and uh, a great singer and their their history and their the the variety and the kinds that like the Who sell out is a whole different animal and you know there's just amazing band and there's a million more bands it's like if you ask me what my favorite movie is cinema paradiso no questions asked i like other movies blade runner all this other stuff but it's my number one movie you ask me my favorite band what you know i you know where's you know where's irma thomas singing time is on my side where's you know there's just so many bands the beatles you know but uh and gang of four uh, again i saw them before anyone knew who they were and it was one of the greatest it was not. It was one guitar player, one bass player, and a drummer, and they sounded like eight people. You like a you like a rock band, yeah, right. Now let me ask you about the Who because this is something that we we've been debating on uh, not on this show but on on, on things they've been doing. Is Rolling Stone recently came out with a list of great bands that put out terrible albums, <laughs> and the Who was number fifty on that list. They, they listed fifty, and and then the album that they they chose was uh, It's Hard. I don't think it's hard deserves to be on that list because I think any album that has two major hits immediately, you don't qualify for it. That album had Athena and Eminence front on it along with a couple of other ones. What's your opinion on that, that album? For me, I thought it was fine. You know, it was, that's later who like, you know, I'm 64. You're probably like 40 or something like that. Yeah. We'll take it. Okay, and you know, in in that era, so there's 15 to 20 years difference there. So I'm telling you about XTC and Gang of Four because I went to college in the 70s. God Save the Queen came out, and that was a 45 I bought, and then I would drive from Boston to New York to get the clothing and trash in vaudeville and come back. You know, I saw Blondie and I saw the Ramones and I saw all these incredible bands, and that's my era. That's late that 70s. Stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, there was that corny '70s stuff that I like, like Frampton and all that other kind of stuff. Like, but I liked the Moody Blues, and I thought they had great songs. But back to the question: Is that's a later Who album, and that was okay. But the early Who albums, especially Who Sell Out, which is completely different than most anything they did. There's, you know, they they were called the Five Fingers, or I forgot what they were the name of the band when they first had started. And it, there was just they were just great rock and roll. You couldn't deny. I think had... one thing you got to take out of that whole thing is you cannot take one thing that Rolling Stone magazine takes uh, seriously. Because I'll, uh, this is when I lost everything for Rolling Stone. I've been in a band since 1997. Uh, I love every, all kinds of music. Jeff will, Jeff will uh, you know, attest to this that my if if I ever died in a car crash and they took my phone, they would look at my music and go, "This guy's a sociopath." Like, how does he listen to all this shit? But uh, I'll never forget reading this. That I'm watching the the 100 top greatest guitar players of all time. Now, Nirvana was gigantic for me, 
uh, because it was in my high school years. So mm. it was like from sophomore to senior year, there was nothing in the world that was more important to me than Nirvana. Yeah. And so, I saw them I mean, without knowing who they were. Yeah, yeah we, I, I we ran. Just, I, I, I uh, them, snuck in. I snuck in. It's the channel in Boston. I, okay. I, I, yeah. I saw them at Roseland. Yeah, I snuck into that show at Roseland. Yeah. It was like 93, I believe. So uh, number 70 guitar player of all time was Eddie Van Halen. Now, if you're uh, what saying number was he? 70, 70. Okay, now, if already, you're telling already, me that there's... You lost me. You're telling me there's 69 guitar players on this planet that are more influential or better than Eddie Van Halen. I will tell you to go fuck yourself because even though I'm not a huge, ginormous Van Halen fan, he and I love them, but he is one of the pioneers of music and he's a top five guitar player of all time. And they put Kurt Cobain at number 11. Interesting. So I'm like, this is the biggest piece of dog shit that I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> well, and anytime just... you make a list like that, you know, it's going it, to, first of all, it's subjective and it's, you know, it's so, so wrong. The, the, the reason I have a problem with Rolling Stone is because the articles are written by people who make it about themselves. You know, when I went to the concert, I don't give a shit that you went to tell me about the band. I, you know, where if you read the New Musical Express or some of the Q magazines or the British Mojo you know, you really find out about the bands. Like I would always, I worked in England a lot, a lot, a lot. And I would go there reading all their magazines, buying the records before they, and CDs, before they came out in America. Because, you know, you really got to know about bands where you read the Rolling Stone. It's like, well, I don't give a shit that this is a famous writer who's writing this thing. I don't, he's not famous to me. What's the album like? You know, you know, who plays on it? All that, that's more important. So the Rolling Stone, not my favorite, um, although I have read it for some of the politics or some other stuff in there. You know, sometimes you get like a good interview in there, but I mean, like when it comes to the list, I think they do it just so guys like us would talk about it because, <laughs> and get so outraged. Like, wow. like, like what, like what they have to say has any more uh, credence than our opinion. Well, right. I think a lot of it too is like we mentioned the word before and it's very, very true. It's pandering yeah. because when you look at the Rolling Stone lists that were out forever, I think, I believe, uh, like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan was the number one song for years and years and years and years. And they put out the new list. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to scroll through it really quick. Uh, number one was You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman by Aretha Franklin. Now, again, it's a great song. It's an absolutely great song. But what? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Respect by Aretha Franklin. So now this song is a great song. Is it the greatest song of all time? There's no way in hell. This is the greatest song of all time. But it went from like number 28 the last time they ranked it to number one. What has changed in that time period, right? Well, I mean, in, in, in the last 10 years, what has changed? Not much. Yeah. No, not much. But number two, number two was Fight the Power by Public Enemy. So you're telling me In My Life by the Beatles, which I think is one of the most pure, beautiful, loving songs you're ever going to hear in your entire life. Written you're before they were 25. Right. right. You, you're telling me that Fight the Power by Public Enemy is a more important song. It's pandering. That's exactly yeah. what that whole list was. And I, 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 won't ever, I won't ever read a Rolling Stone article ever again after I read it. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, like the Beach Boys that uh, God Only Knows is one of the greatest oh, songs in the greatest history. Song. Well, one of the greatest albums. Yeah. Yeah. So is it fair to say that Elvis Costello is, you know, if you had to pick one, one artist, is it Elvis Costello for you? I kind of get that feeling. It kind of has been this whole time. Plus, I got to meet him and know him. He uh, hosted once for on Letterman 
when Let Dave was out, when he had the shingles and everything, and I got to like work hand in hand with him and you know talk to him on stage. I just saw him the other night. I would, you know, it's between him and the Eels as far as who are the great bands of my of my life because the Eels to me they write like Elvis writes. The the lead singer uh, E writes like Elvis writes. His his writing is amazing and very emotional, which I like a lot. You know, just like I like the great old soul blues stuff because it was so emotional and, you know, but the, it's just hard. It's just such a hard show. I mean, I'm having a great time, but to pick your favorite, you know, it's just like, oh, I can't. I could. Each era is amazing. Like there's a band called Jellyfish that nobody knows. And I, they remind me of Queen kept going on there. You ever get to listen to Jellyfish? Their songs are amazing and very incredible. You know, it's just like, but no one knows who they are. But they're one of my top ten bands. Let's go back to yeah, Elvis I love, Stella. I love Hold on a second, like Sean. Because this is something I, I you know, because this is my my favorite composer. I mean, I have great songwriters. I love Burt Bacharach. Oh. Okay, and the fact that Elvis Costello hooked up with Burt Bacharach, and I used to play the shit out of that album. I love. They it. just released no, yesterday or the day was, before. The it was new... so emotional. This, this house is not a home anymore. I mean, that song would just rip my heart out. And I'd I just I'd be like a little baby and just, just start like, <laughs> you know, like getting emotional, like listening to it. Like I was driving around be in my basement or whatever I was doing. Um, how did that You'd be happy right? to know that they just released the Elvis Bacharach, all of it on a, a big box set two days ago. Good. Well, I'll, I'll be ordering it off of Amazon once this podcast is over. So how did they kind of get together? Do you, do you know the story on that? Um, they had to write a song for uh, Grace of My Heart for the the Matt Dillon movie. That was uh, um, God Give Me Strength is the name of the song. And uh, they just, you know, they loved each other and they decided to come together for this movie. Well, it was so wildly successful that they ended up starting to a relationship, mostly doing it over answering machines is what I uh, heard Elvis say, you know, I called his answer machine, gave him some ideas. One of the biggest thrills of my life was when Bert was on Letterman and I went out to him to talk, to just say hello. And he said, hey, sit with me. So I'm sitting on the piano bench next to Bert and he's playing the piano. And I said, you know, I recorded years ago instrumental versions of your songs and we called it Back to Bacharach. And he says, oh, my God, I can't believe I never thought that. I said, when I was a little kid and I was like this you know, changing the words to all the songs to make them dirty. One of them was F-U-C-K walking down the street. And he hit the deck <laughs> laughing. He never had heard that before. And he could, and then he started asking me, like you were talking about other comedians who, you know, uh, who LaShawn was saying about how other comedians were saying they like your stuff and asked you questions. Well, Bacharach was asking me about comedy and how do I do what I do and how do I write? And I'm like, wait a second, that you're reading the wrong part of the script. I'm supposed to ask you, uh, about this stuff it was very very dreamy and cool and um so happy that i got to do that was he a great guy <laughs> the greatest like so down to earth and such a genius at the same time i've met almost everybody he's the one guy i would have always loved to have met and and spoke to yeah he, there was something about his his orchestration his writing the those 60s and 70s songs that were just so identifiable and they were just even if even like something like raindrops keep falling on my head you know you know who also is one of my heroes i got to meet was uh carol king carol king has written oh, some no, of the greatest songs in the history of the world and and her pleasant valley sunday version is much better than the monkeys version even though mm -hmm. i do like a lot of the monkeys hits but she did a great version of Pleasant Valley Sunday, which is one of the greatest songs of all time. Sean, you ready to hate me? 
<laughs> I've hated it because, for fucking 12 years. Because where did Carol King sometimes write? In the Brill building. Because ah. the name is Eddie Brill. You get it? Nobody gets it. <laughs> no, no, we get it. It's just horrible. <laughs> we just we just letting that that stinkeroo yeah, hang that out there. Fart stink, yeah. that I fart deserve this. I, I, I love wordplay. I love wordplay. So you can't go wrong with me on that. Um, yeah, the, the eels. You know what they were known for? And we're gonna, we, we just got to wrap this up real soon. Um, is when Steve Perry was in obscurity for a while. Yes. He yes. came out and sang with them. I know he loved them. It's his favorite band. You know, See, and I know one song. I know Novocaine for the Soul, and that's all I know. had like 17 albums, and no one's heard of them. <laughs> I had no you idea. Know? I really didn't. I, I thought knew, they were a one yeah. wonder, to be honest. Life is hard, and so am I. That's Novocaine yep. for the Soul. But, you know, this song called The Look You Give That Guy, you know, it's what I've seen them so many times in concert and, uh, you know, became friendly with them. Um, you know, it's just they're so good and they're they're so unique and they're, they're, the writing is spectacular in the Elvis Costello range of brilliant writing. Eddie, last thing before we go. Okay. Uh, I think you're a hockey fan, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, big time. Okay. Are the, are, do the Rangers have enough to overtake the Bruins? No. They're they not physical. They think they did the wrong thing at the trade deadline. They went for the splashy name in, in Kane. They should have gone for the grunt defenseman to clear the front of the puck. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they. Uh, I don't really like Drury as much as I like Gordon and uh, Davidson. Well, as far on, as putting the teams together, you know, I mean, Drury's made some good decisions, but he, he's not the guy. I think, uh, and the Bruins are just too good. The Bruins lose, you know, two of their best players in Felino and uh, and Felino and Barnes. No, Felino and Ward, and they uh, and they just picked up. Uh, Derek, the, the two, yeah, the two guys right. off the Capitals, Bertuzzi, and then the guy from yeah, yeah, the Capitals, Tyler Bertuzzi. They're just uh, too good. And Bill Burr and a lot of my friends are huge Bruins fans, and uh, and I've been, you know, we've done the Cam Neely benefits for all these millions of years, and we got to know a lot of the Bruins. Um, I got to be very close with the Red Wings in the '90s. They saw me in a show. Um, and then I would travel around the country around their schedule. Was that the Eiserman? Eiserman, and yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, I'm a huge hockey fanatic, so I love really great hockey. But uh, the Rangers, I've suffered with them my whole life. And well, it's only been 29 years since they won a yeah, cup. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's almost becoming like what was the chant? Uh, 19, 19, 1940. Yeah, nineteen forty. It's almost becoming that again. Yeah, people, people sure think it will. That, hey, it's recent history. They they just won a cup of Messi. It was twenty nine years ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's I know. crazy. But I love sports, and I've always loved. In nineteen sixty nine, I was a young boy, and the Mets won the World Series on my birthday, so that was huge. And then, uh, and then the the Knicks won the seventh game of the championship against the Lakers. My father took me to that game. It was pretty fucking psychotic so cool to be able to go and then the jets won the super bowl and namath was my hero and the rangers even made it to the semifinals and lost against i think boston that year so that that was solidified my new york teams and they've probably you know the mets have won two one other one and you know the jets haven't won any and the rangers won one so you know i picked all the shitty teams but i don't uh switch or tell you know i stay with my teams that's that's what real fans do. Hey, bro, how could people find you? Um, on Instagram, I'm at Eddie Comic. On Twitter, I'm Eddie underscore Brill. You know, I'm on Facebook. I put a lot of uh, content on Facebook because no one really goes there. And, uh, you know, and I write a bunch of I've written about 320 stories for uh, a book. And uh, I put some of the 
you know, content on Facebook, but you can always uh, contact me through Facebook because you can just friends, you, know, you can say hello to people that are not your Facebook friends or whatever. But Instagram, it's easy to find me and um, and just, you know, be I'd be glad to answer anything that anyone asks. Listen, I mean, we could have spoke to you for another hour. I, I mean, same with me with you guys. You know, you're, you're, you know, like, like, like I, the way I started this show off. I mean, not just a comedian. I mean, it, it, just like a fascinating, fascinating career with you know, just like really like great insights to, to everything you've said. So we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, and I appreciate you guys very much. And I love people who really care a lot about this. You know, I, I mean, I care so much about it, and to hear you guys talking about it, it's, it's, it's very refreshing. Very cool. Appreciate that. Sean, great job this uh, weekend. I'm sorry I, I couldn't uh, sell more tickets for you. I didn't know that was the job of the uh, feature, but uh, I will I will work harder the next time. All right. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to plug a show because it'll yeah. be out before that. Big show. Thursday, September 6th. I'm in September. Thursday, March 16th. Uh, I'm making my long-awaited return to the Stress Factory in New Brunswick. Hey, there you go. It's been about probably 10 years, and now that I live 12 fucking minutes away from it. <laughs> There's no reason why I'm not a regular there anymore. So yeah, please come out to that. We uh, me and my my dear friend Gary Delena are going to be there. You know, Gary Delena's cousin is my first friend in life. No Eddie, Eddie Delena. Yeah. Weird yeah. weird world we live in. Yeah. Small Gary, small than, than some greatest. people make it out to be. Yep. All right, folks. Listen, please subscribe. Keep following. Uh, we appreciate it, Eddie. Thank you so much for your time. My and pleasure. we'll catch you next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank yeah. you, Eddie. Take care.